What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. We're very privileged to be joined by Dr. David Kirkland. He's a transdisciplinary scholar of of English and urban education, and he explores the intersections among urban youth culture, language, and literacy. As an urban teacher of preparation in digital media, he analyzes culture, language, and text, and has expertise in critical literacy, ethnographic, and sociolinguistic research methods. Very privileged to have you on our program. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sylvia. Now, in one of your most recent articles, uh, Black Skin, White Mask, Normalizing Whiteness and the Trouble with the Achievement Gap, you speak about the educational gap. Can you talk a little bit about your article and how has education been synthesized? What's missing? Who is being left behind? Well, one thing that I attempt to do in that article is challenge the notion of the education, um, or at least the achievement gap. I think the achievement gap is a misplaced metaphor. In a sense, the achievement gap prescribes achievement to, to a certain um, population, and that population is usually homogeneous, and the po- population is usually white. And that population becomes the standard by which everyone else is measured. And I find it problematic that we use that standard when talking about, you know, black and brown kids, poor kids. And it really doesn't do us much service when we think about reframing education, education for justice, but even this notion of achievement. I think there are better metaphors that can be used. So as opposed to an achievement gap, Gloria Latzing Billings in 2006, I believe, in her ERA presidential address, Um, in ARA as the American Educational Research Association, she uses a a, a term called the, or a phrase called the education debt. Here, we're not blaming kids for not achieving. Instead, we're blaming a system that's failing, you know, um, to help kids pay off on those educational funds that we owe them. And so the education debt suggests that kids aren't failing, we're failing kids. When I think about um, the society we live, we are faced with economic crisis, we're faced with crisis of food, we're faced with crisis of uh, people not being able to live 
in particular areas because of water, because of floods, because of things that we are calling natural disasters. And I would argue that there are no natural disasters. You know, there are people that are made vulnerable uh, by their cir circumstances, by extreme poverty. How does education um, that negates or ignores the contextual and the intersection of poverty and the privilege that is achieved through higher education uh, contribute to maintaining this in injustice, but also uh, this normalized way of living. Right, right. Well, the term education is a tricky term because in a lot of circles it's automatically seen as good. And I think there is a sentiment that you're expressing in your statement that education hasn't always been used you know, to help people. In fact, in some ways, education is used to hold down large groups of people, whereby those people begin to consent, you know, to oppression. So if we think about education in the United States, um, when kids go to school, let's say, and, and begin to read text, text like Shakespeare, they're not only learning Matthew Arnold's best that's thought and said, if you want to consider Shakespeare as the best that's thought and said. They're also learning that who can say what's best or, or who can think what's best, you know, are white men. And so that education typically, instead of being empowering, becomes very disabling and disempowering, where students, particular students, have to make certain choices, either choose to put on the clothes of a community, an identity that doesn't feel or look like you, or choose not to and suffer the consequences of failure. And, and, and so when we begin to look at education in that sense, it's not, it's not empowering, but education can be empowering just as much as it can be oppressive. And the education that I like to think of that's empowering are the types of community education projects that happen across the United States, if not the globe, where people are beginning to learn and understand themselves and how they're situated within our multicultural democracy in ways that can motivate powerful participation. And by powerful participation, I mean education, you know, with the will to vote, education toward political enfranchisement, education toward, you know, a, a more nuanced sense of self, education that leads to, you know, young men you know, thinking less misogynistically about women, young women thinking, you know, highly about themselves, education that begins to look at the ignorances that, you know, cause homophobia, xenophobia, and all the other phobias, you know, um, that we learn through the scripts of our um, society. So when we think of education, I think we have to begin to unpack that term in serious ways because education, just as it can be touted and it can be wielded, you know, um, to do a lot of good, traditionally, particularly within our schools among poor and um, kids of color, education becomes a, a, a weapon to further their oppression. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this relationship between oppression and how the state is implicated in the kinds of education that are pursued, the, the kind of education that is inculcated in, in the relationship between the two, the oppression of the vast majority of black and Latinos and the kinds of naturalization of uh, policies like the war on drugs and things that right. uh, debase our humanity as beings. Let's look at some of the metaphors again. Like, well, like one of my favorite metaphors 
is this metaphor that we do with reading. And so we call urban kids who are not reading toward proficiency. We call those kids, you know, struggling readers or striving readers. And we create this very interesting set of, you know, metaphors around it. One metaphor is like reading recovery. What a base metaphor, right? Reading recovery. We got triage for these, you know, broken kids who can't read. And what that does, it gives us a deficit perspective. It gives us a a, a negative way to begin to look at communities and situations um, that is institutionalized based on how we think about and talk about education. And I think that's problematic at its core. Why don't we have more enlightening metaphors like reading discovery, right, as opposed to reading recovery? Another idea, you know, we have, you know, this notion in education about disengaged readers, and we're usually talking about, you know, brown and black boys, you know, who refuse to read what's handed to them in class. And yet, when we look at these young men outside of classrooms, they're reading and writing in droves, creating text on bodies and walls, um, reading text through video games and other forms of, you know, textual situations. And they don't necessarily get credit in school for that type of reading, nor do, do they get to be called readers. And yet I think we have the adjective misplaced. It's not that they're disengaged readers because they read a lot. The reading that we have them do in school, however, is disengaging. And so instead of talking about disengaged classrooms, we filtered the blame toward, you know, certain populations of people who are essentially powerless. And this is how the state becomes implicated in education. The state and the media, and I have to say the media, creates this fog where we can not see too well, you know, what's really going on. And and what's really going on is that, you know, black and brown kids, you know, while they're not achieving as highly on standardized tests, they have some of the same developmental trajectories as all kids. So the question that we have to ask is if, if developmentally they're consistent, if developmentally they're the same as dominant population, you know, why don't they reap the rewards of education, nor do they get, you know, um, considered or talked about inside of our larger public discourse in empowering ways. So instead of, you know, talking about these kids, you know, at at least through state-sanctioned discourses from a deficit perspective, how can we begin to talk about them through a profit perspective? How do we create, and 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 for me, I think it's a part of us uh, appropriating our own education and, you know, not only demanding but also creating a new way of educating ourselves because it's not going to come from above. It has to be created from below. Uh, So where do we begin and uh, what are the opportunities that we need to grasp on? I think we have to begin to protect some of our um, opportunities because before... Um, desegregation, there were um, instruments within, you know, um, communities of color where education and education in very empowering and rich ways happened. I think what happens is when we hand over the rights of education, we hand over the rights of what, you know, gets considered to be, you know, um, educational content. Not only do we hand over the rights of what gets um, to be considered, you know, educational content, we hand over the rights of who gets to be considered educated. Carter G. Woodson, I think, put it best. He said, if you control a man's thoughts, you don't have to worry about his actions. 
You don't have to send him out the back door. He'll go without being told. And if there is, isn't a back door for him to go out of, he'll cut one out for his own special benefit. Education makes it necessary. And to me that says whoever controls the means, not just of production, material production, but also mental production, you know, controls the keys, right, to our communities, to our, to our cultures and our subjectivities, ourselves and our, our senses of possibility for acting. I want to say this. There are rich deposits of education. Louis Moll calls it funds of knowledge. And I believe that these funds of knowledge, you know, are readily available within all of our communities. And these funds of knowledge can be picked up. They're valuable resources that we shouldn't give away cheaply, that we should hold on to, like our cultural celebrations. Um, I was in um, California, May 5th, um, 2011, and I went to a Cinco de Mayo um, celebration. And it was one of the most powerful, enlightening, educative things about oppression, about colonization, about people and their inherent resilience to struggle against oppression. It was a counter-narrative to the dominant education that we got. And my only regret was that everybody in this nation, if not the world, could have been at this event to begin to understand the counter-histories that are being written, that are being celebrated and talked about. My sense is that these things are going on everywhere. My sense is that from, you know, California to Connecticut, we can find people educating, celebrating rituals, constructing and articulating counter-narratives, you know, to the dominant narrative where people of color and poor people, you know, find enfranchisement within their own communities. And they draw on their rich sources, resources, their Funds of knowledge, as Louis Moll would say, or to use another esoteric term, um, Pierre Bourdieu's cultural capital. They do have cu- cultural capital. The other question then becomes: How do we take make you know local cultural capital of communities of color, historically misre- underrepresented communities? How do we make that mass cultural capital? How do we make text by you know authors like Ophelia Garcia? How do we make those texts, you know, as relevant as texts by, let's say, um, Shakespeare or Emily Dickinson? Because there are writers who are non-white who have put together, you know, powerful words and performances. In my own work, I've pushed, you know, popular culture in the classroom to have our students begin to discover and discuss themselves and the world through the text that makes sense to them, not necessarily the text that, you know, have made sense to, you know, our oppressive traditions. And we've seen some results. We see students more engaged when they're able to read, let's say, for instance, you know, um, a Tupac song in class. We see students, you know, highly engaged in criticism, literary and film and cultural criticism, when they're able to, you know, discuss a film um, that's popular, let's say like X-Men, where they really begin to discuss issues of intolerance. And, And I think that there is room for us to begin to break open, you know, the traditions, the static traditions of education, and begin to insert new stuff, stuff that's already happening on the ground in our communities that are part of our, you know, um, community and cultural resources, our cultural education, our cultural identities. Um, and, I, and I think it's up to us, as you said, to begin to enforce that conversation.
Fairy talks about learning to read the word in order to read the world. How do you engage your students? Um, for instance, through hip hop, you talk in your writing how uh, by not only connecting to what they are interested in, there are opportunities. Can you give us an example or some of the stories that most uh, dominant curriculum texts ignore or are not covering? In order to fully understand the world and be removed from the systems and cycles of oppression that can coincide with education. We have to become critical consumers of the universe. We have to develop a consciousness, and that consciousness develops around understanding our position in the world, beginning to name things like oppression and points of oppression in order to um, articulate a response to those things, to those items. One thing that we do in some of my work, I have a curriculum called Teaching Tupac, and we listen to the um, to rap lyrics. We listen to the um, lyrics of rappers from Tupac to Lil Wayne, and we try to understand deeply what they're saying as cultural critics, people who have used their textual ability, their education, to begin to describe some of the conditions of our world. And then we, we analyze, much like you would any other text, you know, the points that they're making, whether or not those points, you know, first we try to understand what they're saying, and then they analyze the points that they're making. You know, and I, and I argue that a lot of generative work can come from this process, this process of reflection and action, this process of deep reading and analysis and applying that analysis to life. So, for instance, um, Tupac in one of his songs, um, Keep Your Head Up, he talks about women who are on welfare. He goes, Tupac cares if don't nobody else care, which becomes a very interesting, you know, counter-narrative to the dominant narrative of, of our culture because the argument is that women who are on welfare, you know, um, are, are lazy, right? Um, or they are welfare queens, people, you know, who are sexually vivacious or worse, sexually promiscuous, you know, um, in the most degenerative ways. Well, when Tupac says it, he honors. I give a holler to my women on welfare. So, so, so his narrative isn't that these women are, you know, derogatory or bad in any way, but, but to the contrary. In some ways, they should be honored. They're doing what they can, you know, to raise the next generation. They're doing what they can to help people out. So from that reflective stance of reading hip-hop and reading the text that's very real and very relevant to our students, you know, we begin to move toward action points. And this is where Paulo Fede's notion of praxis comes into play, because not only are we reflecting on the world, we're also acting on the world. And the acting on the world, you know, um, is pivoted toward, you know, change, change toward improvement. And that improvement is, you know, locating an issue like oppression and beginning to rewrite it. These students in this one particular class that read um, Tupac's Keep Your Head Up and began to talk about, you know, his treatment of women, you know, as compared to society's treatment of women, a particular type of woman, women who are on welfare. They had a, a holiday, not a welfare woman's holiday, but a mother's um, holiday that was different than Mother's Day. It became a day where the school and students celebrated, you know, women. They brought in texts by women. They wrote stories about mothers, you know, um, and the power of motherhood. And both men and women did it alike. Mothers came in and shared their stories, and it became a deep day of devotion. What it did was 
it changed our consciousness around motherhood and it changed our consciousness around the location of women, you know, around that concept. They articulated a counter narrative, if you will, you know, um, to this notion of welfare. And then we began to see that welfare wasn't just a system of dependency and uh, assistance that people who are marginal, at least economically marginal in our society, welfare is the care and the love that our mothers give us in situations of great struggle and sometimes, you know, despondency and desperation. And it became a beautiful day and a beautiful commentary on our humanity. And so just by beginning to read some of those books, students are beginning to make those connections to the world and changing the world, so much so that they can articulate and call out their own holiday. Many of the classes that we see our, our students participate in are furthering the biases against youth, the um, the narrative of who is the criminal, who is the um, the deviant in society. How do we overcome that narrative? Because a lot of that, I think, is also self-internalized, and, and we repeat and reinscribe ourselves with those labels. Right, right. I think, I think that there are mechanisms within the school in the school industrial complex that lead to the prison industrial um, complex. I have friends who write about the school-to-prison pipeline, and it's very real. Um, Ann Ferguson says that just as schools, you know, track some to be doctors and lawyers, it tracks others to be prisoners. And we see this when we go into schools. Detentions are, you know, usually held in basements where there are no windows. And these places look like, you know, prison facilities. The punitive damages are disproportionately handed out to, you know, males of color. And so we see a lot of those things, you know, from suspension and dropout and, you know, other categories that are associated with school reflected in, you know, who gets a job in society and who doesn't, who gets to stay out of prison and who doesn't. And so these things are very real. In terms of solutions, what can we do? I think we have to take more of an active role in how our youth, youth in our communities, um, youth in our homes experience school and society. Again, I want to go back to points about, you know, metaphors, because you're right. There are some points of self-fulfilling prophecy where if the narrative that you get from society is that you're not worth it or you're not much, you know, you're going to begin to believe it. And not only are you going to begin to believe it, you're going to begin to behave it. And when you begin to behave it, you know, it's not much that can happen. So we have to, we have to begin to work at that level and that moment of belief, right, um, where you begin to believe that you're a problem. Du Bois and um, the souls of black folk, he asks a, a, a very interesting question. I think it's a pivotal question to, you know, the con this conversation and the question that you raised, and that is, what does it feel like to be a problem? And that's how our students go to school almost every day. They go to school, crumbling buildings sometimes, sometimes hopping over bodies, either homeless bodies or bodies that have been laid to sleep with a lot on their mind, stress, and I'm talking about post-traumatic stress. Right? And so, so some of our students have, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome going to schools, impressing those beliefs that they can't make it, those beliefs that they are a problem. And we have to let them know that they're not the problem. 
again, that the deficit discourse that we place on them, we, we, we have to begin to peel it apart and put in its place a profit perspective, one that says that they can't, that the problem, if there is a problem, it's not them. The problem is the crooked society that we have erected around them. And if we've erected a crooked society around them, then it's up to us to begin to pull that society down. I like to use an analogy. Let's say success is in a gated fortress. The fortress is huge and close to impenetrable. It has gates that keep some in, those who succeed and keep some out, those who don't succeed. One articulation of the solution is to give those who are outside the gate keys so they can get in. However, there's only a certain amount of keys to be distributed. So let's say we have 100 people outside. We only have five sets of keys to give to those people. So 95 people have to stay outside, but only five people can make it in. And so we got the 100 people beating themselves up over keys so they can make it in. Another solution would be then to throw away the keys, take those 100 people and begin to tear the gates down to the fortress so that everybody can make it in. It's not just about access to, you know, this, to the education system that we have right now. It's not just about access to something that doesn't work for our people. It's about tearing that thing down and erecting something else in its place, something that will house all of us equally. And I think that's where the work starts, somewhere between helping our students to believe in themselves from a profit perspective and working to break down those things, those gated places that keep youth out, that keep youth away from fulfilling great potential. If we do have a goal in education, if we do have a goal in social justice, if we do have a goal in terms of transformative theory, that goal has to do with possibility. And that goal has to do with, you know, if we're gonna have self-fulfilling prophecies, those self-fulfilling prophecies should be empowering prophecies. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. My guest is Dr. David Kirkland. You have a book coming up, uh, Search Past Silence. Uh, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It's a book with Teachers College Press, and it's a narrative of six young men that I studied in Michigan, um, again, around this notion that, you know, some people are literate and other people aren't. And I wanted to challenge, well, at least these young men, for me, challenged that notion that some men were literate or some people are literate and some people aren't. I think some literacies are recognized and some literacies aren't, and these young men's literacies weren't recognized. So what I wanted to do is show various points in their lives where language, words and stories, syntax and vocabulary became very powerful points of articulation where they found themselves and they located themselves within a larger world and it ends with the question if they are human if they are to be humanized why can't we educate them why can't we respect what they bring to classrooms too and so the search past silence is you know searching past some of our quiet assumptions discriminations prejudices about certain people for those places of compassion and tolerance and even more respect where we become a human community guided by the goodwill of, you know, um, our humanity. And it's not just for, you know, um, populations of color. 
I've argued that, you know, white students in a, a homogeneous, you know, white population, middle class population can learn just as much, you know, from studying rap music in class as an urban, you know, kid, you know, who happens to be poor and of color. And they may learn different things, and those different things they, they learn, you know, may be more important for them to learn. Because the world is becoming more and more cosmopolitan, we're becoming more global, and there's points of contact that we're making. And then there's the conversation about our humanity. If this education that I'm articulating is about heightening our humanity, then why shouldn't it be for everybody? Thank you so much for being with us. How can people access your book? It comes out with Teachers um, College Press. I have a few other books, Change Matters, which is on Amazon, Narratives of Social Justice Teaching. It's also on Amazon. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an education consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.